Hello and welcome to this episode of Thrill of the Hill. My name is Alec Perry and this is the Farm Advisory Service series where we discuss the hot topics impacting the farmed upland environment. In today's episode of Thrill of the Hill, I speak with returning guest and working for Waders Advocate Patrick Laurie and RSPB's Stephen Inglis and we discuss the changing fortunes of Scotland's national priority ground nesting wading birds, including a review of monitoring cameras, interactions between livestock and waders, and the need for renewed efforts on predator control. Hello, Stephen, Patrick, how are you doing? Yeah, good, thanks. Good to see you. Good, thank you, Alec. Brilliant. Uh, no, it's really good to have you both on this time. Uh, really looking forward to this conversation. Stephen, this is your first time on the podcast. Um, how are you feeling? And can you give us a bit of an overview as to what uh, what RSPB's role is in terms of wader management? Yeah, hi, Alec. It's, it's good to be on. This is the first podcast uh, that, I, that I've been on, so it's it's good to good to try something new. Yeah, so I mean, RSPB's got a big a big role it's, uh, in wader management uh, and conservation. Waders are a, a big priority species uh, across Scotland and the UK, and certainly it's a, a priority for us uh, in Scotland. Uh, I, uh, in particular, work on a project in the Muirkirk Uplands uh, focused on the special protection area there, uh, part of the Cooperation Across Borders for Biodiversity project or, or CAB project and, and that's a project we've been working with uh, estates, land managers and farmers to uh, offer advice and help them improve their habitats for, for waders and, and for raptors. Good stuff, I'm sure we'll come to some of that later on in the podcast. Patrick, um, welcome back. Um, how have you been? What's been happening? Um, can you give us a bit of an update since uh, since we last spoke? Yeah, so I think it's been it's been six months since we last spoke. Um, it's been yeah, busy winter, busy carving. Um, hay's now in and made and sorted, um, and yeah, very busy breeding season for waders too. So um, yeah, stacks of, stacks of stuffs happened. I've run a uh, a survey of curlews here. I've been working with working for waders, running a, a big nest camera project across the country. It's uh, yeah, no time to sit down. I would absolutely encourage um, our listeners to take a listen to the first podcast that uh, Patrick and I recorded. But uh, I'm wondering, Stephen, can you just lay out for us, get us kicked off and talk about um, the species that fall into the broad category of wader? What are we talking about there? So we use the word we use the term waders quite a lot, but waders are quite often wading in water, but but not always. Uh, and these are the species uh, such as lapwing and and curlew, which you know loads of different areas in the country got different names for them: peewee and wop, etc. But you've also got your oyster catchers, uh, species like snipe, red shank, and golden plover, and and they're breeding across uh, lowland farmland and and right onto the uplands as well. So. That's the that's the waders that we we, we all love so much. And Stephen, waders fall under the category of national priority species here in Scotland. Can you explain for the listeners what that means and why waders are so important to the kind of national story of of Scotland, um, not just in themselves but in in the kind of broader context? Yeah, absolutely. So in in Scotland, uh, we have. Um, Important kind of global populations of these species. So to, to put it in context, the the UK level, we've got 30% of the world's curlew and about the same for oyster catchers. So that's like almost a third of, of all these species, the, all the individuals in the world. And, you know, the context of that is as well that over the past 20 years, all of these waders have largely declined. So in Scotland, for curlew and lapwing, that's been by about 60%. Uh, and for oyster catcher and red shank, by about 40%. So that means that uh, at a kind of global level, these species are, are near threatened, uh, which, which really ramps them up the conservation um, agenda. And you know, so that's why they're really national priorities in terms of the conservation effort. But we have to remember that they're also, you know, have a very large cultural significance, very prominent species in rural life, uh, and species that, you know, are a, a large part of people's memories of, of these landscapes. And it's something that we want to pass on to, to future generations. 
all three of us were at a conservation meeting in Cumnock centred around wader management in, in East Ayrshire. Stephen, I wouldn't mind, um, or, or I was going to ask you if you wouldn't mind summarising the meeting, what the overall aims of the night were and how you feel it went? Yeah, so we, we wanted to hold that meeting as we're coming up to the end of the, the CAB project, which we've now been working on in that area since uh, the beginning of 2017. So we've, we had one at the start of the project to kind of outline what we wanted to do and, and get some interest from landowners and, and managers. But we we wanted to do one at the end to kind of to wrap it up and, and kind of partly celebrate what we've, we've achieved collectively through the project, but also kind of come together and think about what the next steps are. So uh, it was a good opportunity for us all to, to come together and, and think about that. And certainly, you know, we don't have, you know, crystal clear plan for the future and, and how we want to continue to address, you know, the factors that, that are relevant to the SPA. But I think it was a pretty good night in terms of the turnout and and the interest in the room, you know, and I think the, the content from from all three of us went down pretty well. So uh, I would say that the, the general consensus is that everybody, you know, the majority of folks across the SPA want to, to continue to do kind of positive uh, land management for, for biodiversity, but, you know, for waders in particular. So I think we're, we're in a good position to, to build on that and, and continue to do uh, really positive stuff. And Stephen, just on that, for the listeners who might not know the area, can you just outline what the designated sites are in East Ayrshire? Yeah, so we've, we've got, uh, we've got two, um, Triple SI sites of special scientific interest, and they underpin uh, the, the EU kind of level designation, which is the Special Protection Area or, or SPA. So there's slightly different designated species and, and habitat features for those designations, but the, the principal ones are the the suite of uh, breeding uh, raptors that have historically been present. So that's hen harrier, peregrine merlin short eared owl, but also some of the, the wader species as well. So it historically has had a, a good population of golden plover. Uh, and then the, the habitat, which, you know, the blanket bog, which is quite a predominant habitat across the site is of uh, national importance. So that's the, the main designations that which we're kind of working towards improving. Great. And Patrick, this might come off as too broad a question, but how are the waders in Scotland? How are things looking this year? Um, what uh, what are things like in terms of the? You've done some pretty extensive monitoring. What what have you noticed? It probably is probably is too big a question, but um, so certainly in amongst lots of um, like a more general decline across the country, um, this year's been a funny one actually. Some places uh have done better than they thought they were going to um other places have had just a pretty solid standard year and what's interesting actually is that some places um were all geared up to do big things this year and actually waders didn't didn't particularly lapwings didn't turn up in the places where they were expected to, to turn up um so so odd I'd say generally, I suppose the picture is quite odd, but yeah, we um, personally, I did uh, quite a big project on on trying to get a, a figure for how many curlews there are in this part of Galloway. That was a big thing I worked on with lots of farmers uh, where I am. But but through the Working for Waders project, we we did lots of monitoring of waders at nests, and yeah, we were we were quite pleased with with the number of nests that that, that came off successfully. The problem is, of course, that if you set a camera at a wader nest you, you there's a fair chance you might see uh, the really satisfying exciting um, spectacle of a whole load of chicks um, hatching off but as soon as they walk out of sight from that camera you've got absolutely no idea what's happened to them and actually wader chicks are really really difficult to monitor so while we while we saw some really good hatches of chicks we can only then really rely on anecdote and kind of what people are seeing on the ground to kind of inform how we feel the year went but yeah but mixed mixed bag but but actually surprisingly positive amongst a, a much bigger kind of general downward trend and uh, Stephen, uh, 
much the same question. I mean, in your experience this year, what is the situation like for waders on the ground? I'd say locally. So we've got a couple of monitor sites uh, across East Ayrshire and South Lanarkshire, and it's probably shaping up to be the best year that we've had in the past three or four years where we've been doing quite a lot of intensive nest monitoring uh, and a bit a bit like what Patrick was saying, you know, the, the brood survival is the thing that we've got a, a kind of less good handle on. But at a, our, our reserve near Muirkirk at Airds Moss, where we, we do actually try to, you know, monitor the broods to fledging, we've, we've actually had a really encouraging encouraging year. So really high hatching success for Curlew. And most broods which have hatched out are just fledging last week or on the brink of fledging in the next couple of weeks so brood sizes aren't looking very big and uh, we're mostly seeing kind of broods of one or two uh, but we're, we're seeing kind of the best productivity we've had for a few years and over you know across our other South Lanarkshire sites we're, we're pretty much finding hatching success is, is good as well especially in some of the um agri-environment options where livestock reductions are in place um, and on kind of crop land, particularly a lot of brassica fields. So, uh, yeah, it's a bit of a, a sign of encouragement this year and exactly why it's, you know, all going to plan, um, we're not sure because, uh, you know, with waders, it's very complicated, you know, many different factors influencing their, their kind of productivity so um we certainly won't be complaining though um it's it's nice to see um chicks surviving do you know one of the questions that i was really keen to get both of your takes on was this idea of livestock interactions with waders um, and you kind of mentioned the agri-environment climate scheme there do any of the messages that you're taking from your monitoring, do you think there's any kind of potential for that to play into some of the EECS options that are available or some of the management that you'll be prescribing or suggesting for farmers moving forward? Stephen? Yeah, yeah, I would, I would definitely um, say so. And that's, you know, largely why we're interested in, in monitoring the, the productivity and in these landscapes where agri environment, you know, the current agri environment is in place. Um, and, you know, we, we are finding that in some places, tweaks, you know, to the current prescriptions would, would probably make things um, better for readers. And I think probably being a bit more flexible in terms of being able to to move that management about in response to where the where the birds are settling year to year and um, would probably be one of the, the biggest things to come out of it. And Patrick, I really wanted to get your take on this because you explained to us at this, uh, this previous meeting that uh, you've had some pretty humorous and also horrifying interactions, particularly with the wader nests and, and sheep. I wonder what your thoughts are on the role of grazing livestock um, in proximity to, to wader nests um, and whether or not, like you suggest, that, that maybe um, the nesting phase is not where the protection is required. Maybe, maybe we need something post-hatching but pre-fledgling. That's been a really interesting thing this year. So, I mean, um, we're talking specifically about sheep damaging nests, maybe eating eggs. Um, none of this is... None of this is new. We've kind of known that this this occasionally happened uh, now and again for for years and years. Uh, it seems like kind of a weird thing that a sheep would think to go and eat eggs or um, go and deliberately damage a nest for no obvious reason. But anyway, we certainly, as I say, we've had evidence that this happened for years. What's what's odd is that this year we got we got loads of video evidence of it and loads of photographs of it. Um, almost disproportionately like it was one of the actually one of the leading reasons why nests didn't succeed this year um and that's something that we really need to look at that's something that that's that's just a really interesting kind of challenge what's actually making sheep do this why are they doing it what's the what are the factors involved in, in in why this is happening but at the same time i think it's really important to keep it in perspective because i mean we only ran a really small study this year um we've got no idea how big a issue this is uh, actually some of the some of the the instances we saw of sheep uh, or sheep livestock damaging nests um the huge majority of examples in one place was one down to one single lamb that was going from nest to nest and damaging the nests so that really 
skews the figures. And it's been quite interesting from my perspective through working for waders, trying to really hold on to this message and keep it in perspective because um, we don't want people to say, oh, no, 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 we, you actually, you can't have sheep in with waders. You can't have livestock in with waders because livestock are doing a really important job for the habitat management. Make sure that there's actually, these are places that waders want to breed in the first place. So it's more about getting more about finding out why it's happening, getting a sense of how significant it is, and we really have no idea how significant it is. This is this is um, this is something that's caught kind of everybody off guard a bit this year, um, and then trying to balance it, trying to mitigate it, trying to find out ways to make sure that it that is not an issue where it is an issue that doesn't become a, a bigger issue. Um, and it's it's interesting, certainly from the human perspective. And waders are very sort of emotive subject. People um, get get very het up about waders quite quickly. Um, some of this stuff gets picked up by um, different people with different agendas. And before you know it, you can see stuff online that says uh, sheep are just the worst thing. We sh- it's it's sheep all waders. Um, that's absolutely not the message that anybody's really anybody's really trying to push from within the project with RSPB. From well, I'm not speaking on behalf of RSPB, but um, you know, from within working for waders, um, nobody's out to kind of cast blame here we we just we genuinely don't know what the answer is we need to find out we need to find out more about it but yeah it's that's it's funny in the past in previous years when we've looked at what's causing declines or what's causing nest losses or nest disturbances for waders i mean it's it's kind of the usual what you'd almost what you'd expect it's it's predators it's badgers it's it's foxes it's crows this year as i say um it's sheep has been a big has been a big deal but who's to say it'll be the same next year so that's why you feel sometimes that when we're doing this and looking in detail at some of these issues it feels like you're opening up a whole can of worms um because yeah some of the stuff we were really sure about this year suddenly we're doubting so it goes to show there's a lot we don't know about waders just yet and patrick so if I'm a landowner in Scotland and I want to do a bit of wader monitoring and I've noticed something interesting um, at a nest that I've identified on the farm and, and I've had the camera out, are you guys interested in seeing that footage? How do people go about collating this data so that it's usable and meaningful? That's a that's a that's a huge question in itself, and that's so when we only ran we ran. Um, quite a few cameras this year the project that we 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 run was enlarged this year but we were still dealing with about 80 90 100 cameras um it's tiny um and what we're not we're not we're not going to draw any kind of nationwide conclusions from what we find all we can get is i mean it's largely it's a good tool to engage people to have conversations like this about what we found um but there's no kind of scientific rigor to seeing what happens at a hundred wader nests when there might be a hundred thousand wader nests in Scotland, we we have we have no we have no idea. Um, one of the main things there's an engagement aspect to it, but also because none of this kind of system exists at the moment, uh, nobody's ever really done this kind of thing before. So when you say about how do you how do we hold data, how do we deal with data? But like we're working that out as we're going on at the moment because like every nest throws up different stuff and it's really hard to kind of put them on a spreadsheet because it's really hard to put them on a spreadsheet that isn't just one field explaining what happened to each nest. Um, so um, that's one of the things we're kind of piloting at the moment. Yeah, we really do want to hear from people. Well, I suppose we're at the end of this year's breeding season. Um, but yeah, if if people have been doing that, and I know lots of people have been doing that off their own bats, but if you've been doing that, we've got a Google form. You can upload information uh, on nesting attempts through that. That all goes into, at the moment, that's going to the British Trust for Ornithology, um, or that's its ultimate destination. But like we are having conversations within the Working for Waders project to be like, you get off the phone to somebody and you hit, you've just heard about how their nest's gone. You speak to someone else and they'll tell you something else about how their nest's gone. And you're like, well, that's just two completely different, completely different stories, can different species, different habitats, different reasons why they might succeed and fail. So, yeah, I think your question, your your question starts loads of hairs running because, like, how do you compare and contrast this? How do you gather that data and make sense of it? And and that's that's something we're really looking at doing at the moment. Are there any areas in Scotland, Patrick, where? you guys just have no idea of what the story is like for waders and would be really interested in establishing that it's it's funny what like even at the start of this this conversation we were talking about um about waders being both popular and rather mysterious like 
generally we know these nationwide figures but a lot of them are i feel like certainly they're drawn from samples and they're drawn from like scotland is huge and waders are everywhere uh, so obviously there's no like when i tried to do some surveys for curlews here like Nobody, nobody's ever done that here. So while people reckoned, oh, God, curlews maybe aren't doing very well in this part of Galloway, there were no figures. Nobody knew Nobody knew what that number was. Um, so, we, again, I, I find it sometimes quite surprising. We don't know. We, we don't know. We know where there's some good places. We know there's where there's some bad places. But there's also huge places that we, we don't know. I don't know. St- Stephen, would you say that's, would you say that's, that's fair enough? Yeah, I think that'd be um, not too far off the mark. It's, it's kind of yeah, we've got loads of local projects across Scotland nowadays, but there's still vast areas that are just kind of dependent upon the kind of coverage of your standard bird surveys that pick up on declines. So you know that in-depth idea of how the numbers are doing and, and what the productivity is like which is you know one of the most important things at the moment um is, yeah will probably be uh will be lacking totally so what we've got at the moment is a is a a google form that's pretty straightforward takes a couple of minutes to fill in but yeah absolutely that if that if people have got so it's specifically about um if you Ideally, lots of people set trail cameras this spring and they've got lovely photographs or videos or bits and pieces of what actually happened. But I mean, the form's set up in such a way that it is, if you saw a nest this year and you've got a note of when the date was and you've got a note of when it hatched or when it failed or, and what you and what caused the failure, I mean, the form is set up to catch to catch nesting attempts, really. Um, so it doesn't need to be a full no-holds-barred um trail camera setup you can just be logging in um observations and we can help you um process bits and pieces of that we can help you work out exactly what it is you've seen also there's quite a lot of room for question marks too so um if you did see birds nesting but you don't know precisely what happened but you know they succeeded or failed or whatever like all of that kind of contributes to a bigger picture but i suppose you can imagine that just means it's even harder and harder keeping the door as wide open as that um means it's harder and harder to process that data but that's in lots of ways that's our problem let's let us worry about that this is the first year within the agri-environment climate scheme that uh, a wader survey has been part of the the application process for those who want to to score the points that are available for it I wonder, could you just um, lay out what the rationale was for that? Um, and, and presumably that's something that you kind of broadly endorse. Yeah, so definitely. I think it helps, you know, although we have, you know, so the, the schemes will have their kind of target areas for, um, you know, where projects and where waders are known to be, you know, within those areas, there's you're going to, going to be quite a, a variability, you know, a lot of variation and where waders are present and, and where they're not present. And I think when it comes to targeting where this, you know, competitive funding can go, then then having that survey data to, you know, back up, you know, will probably help streamline that money to where the, the waders are still currently present and would benefit most from it because, you know, it's still, you know, very valuable to be doing wader-friendly conservation off farms where waders are because you know you want to to try and encourage them to to recolonize other areas the, the priority should be you know making sure that where they are uh, is as optimal as possible but i think going beyond that the the data is is hugely valuable you know so we we have some landscapes where we're quite involved in and there is more survey data to help us you know make decisions about things but certainly going forward in terms of you know wanting to do anything you know out with the prescriptive stuff of the scheme if, if farmers and land managers were going to kind of tailor their management then this way data is really useful to to give them an idea on, on what bits to focus on and it helps us with our input into um you know advising them so it's i think it's it's only a good thing and patrick you mentioned something earlier on that i wanted to come back to and that was predators what do we understand about the role of predator control in wader conservation, um, both in terms of um, gamekeeping within the agri-environment climate scheme? Um, just just how, how, how important is it uh, for, for people to, to undertake predator control? I think it's 
I think it's really important. And it's interesting now that, I mean, we've really got a lot of the data we need to back up a lot of stuff that that, that, that has kind of been sort of accepted wisdom for a while. But it's difficult to run um, government policy on just accepted wisdom. Uh, so it's really encouraging that particularly for waders, we've got some really good uh, information now to say that predator control is, yeah, if not completely integral um really really important really really important if that's not just two ways of saying the same thing um the difficulty though now is one of the things that we're looking at particularly through working for waders is how do you support that how do you fund that so having established the pre- the, the precedent that actually this is something we really need to do um how do we get people doing it? And so, yeah, there's no doubt that uh, gamekeeping has got a big part to play here. Um, gamekeepers are doing great stuff um, in terms of predator control, and actually, some of the best, most exciting places to go and see waders is is in and around places where gamekeepers are working. Um, but not everywhere's got a gamekeeper, and not everywhere's actually got any got even kind of enough work for a gamekeeper. Or every piece of landscape looks really different, and so gamekeeping is maybe just it's worth thinking of gamekeeping as being just one model of um, predator control. Um, I suppose my dad's generation might have thought about predator control about just as being something that a farmer would do as part of the course. That's what part of it's part of farming is you um, keep on top of the foxes, you keep on top of the crows, but that's not necessarily the case anymore. I know lots of um, my neighbors around here don't have a shotgun certificate. They don't have time to run crow cages. They don't, they're not necessarily up for doing this kind of stuff. And in, and in quite an important way, they probably don't really see it as being part of their job. Then it's not, it's not, it's not really something that they, they think about. Um, so it's really important now, given that uh, aspects of predator control can be funded through, through the eggs and, and some of the agri-environment stuff, um, how do we help people do this effectively, uh, efficiently, properly, um, and how do we measure it so we can improve it? Because one man's predator control might be someone else's idea of just mucking about and vice versa. Um, so there's, there's, it's really interesting now. We're at this kind of like, right, we, we know this is really important, but what does this actually, what does this actually look like on the ground? Um, so that's kind of what we're, where we're at with working for waders is how do, we, how do we monitor this? How do we quantify this? How do we get a clear idea of who needs to be doing it, when they need to be doing it, and how best they need to be doing it? And, and in lots of ways, actually, gamekeepers have been really good at taking the lead in this. So gamekeepers are famously proud of their waders. Um, some of the best work that working for waders has been able to do so far is is kind of even piloting little mini schemes where um, gamekeepers come and mentor farmers and say, um, right, you've got last and trap, you've got uh, the ability to shoot foxes here. Actually, this is what gamekeepers do. That's the huge part of what they do day in, day out. Go on, then help the farmers with it. Show them what to do. Show them the best place to put the traps. Show them the best place to get in amongst the foxes. So, so there's lots of skills there, um, kind of flying around. It's by really trying to really focus them in and make sure we're getting the best bang for the buck. Because, as I say, um, we spent a long time proving we need this, and now it's simply a matter of of really, really working out how best to do it. Brilliant. And uh, Stephen, I just wondered um, whether you had any thoughts on on the decline of gamekeeping the agri-environment climate scheme predator control yeah so i mean across across the spa that i work on there's been a big decline uh, in, in predator control from the days when it was you know there was a lot more uh keeping going on there's a lot more intensive grouse management and and you know over the past 20 30 years that's become something which is a lot less common uh you know it just the uh, the figures weren't really stacking up and because that that decline and in, in uh, grouse interest we've kind of had a, a subsequent decline in, in predator control and i think you know looking at the whole of the spa large parts of it you know have, have gone a long time without any predator control and i think at the moment we're coming into a, a point where there's, there's probably more going on than there has been for for quite a long time and it's interesting, and I think this links into to what Patrick was saying about you know different people having different ways of doing it. You know, quite a lot of the mechanisms across the SPA, even between you know adjacent farmers, they're funding it through different mechanisms. They'll be carrying it out differently. You know, we we do some on the reserve, um, you know, fox control during the breeding wader season, and I think there's certainly something there moving forward about 
coordinating that and and working out where the gaps are and you know just how we can you know do that in the most efficient way possible because certainly joining up the dots between adjacent land holdings is going to make that more efficient rather than working you know as islands in isolation where we have you know a constant influx of some of these um predators that that we're, we're having to to control because their, their background levels are you know pretty high in in these landscapes so yeah and Patrick, obviously, you're joining us um, as part of, of working for waders this afternoon. Um, we, in the previous podcast, had talked a little bit about wader scrapes and why they are particularly important. We talked a little bit about rush pasture control. I'm wondering, can you highlight something that, uh, you know, we're, we're now several months on from the previous podcast? What, what do we know is particularly beneficial for, for waders? There's loads of things, um, there's loads of ways to kind of make sure that waders have got what they need uh, through the breeding season. And I suppose uh, a lot of those tools depend upon the piece of ground that you're looking at. In some places, actually, as much as um, we've tended to lean on and publicize the idea of wader scrapes, there's some places actually that probably don't need wader scrapes or wouldn't be wouldn't be well suited to wader scrapes. So I would say there's no one, there's no one or two even um, kind of best things you can do. There's a whole range of different things you can do and fit them in according to what suits you and what suits your farm so um some places um rush management is a is a, a really really important part of it and other places sometimes it's scrub tree removal when uh, spruce trees are coming in from say adjacent forestry plantations so in terms of the habitat work um you've really kind of just got to well certainly from my perspective it makes sense to identify what you're probably quite going to be quite good at and then just head in that direction and it's no use trying to trying to um push in push away from the kind of the natural direction of travel um and back to predator control as well the stronger more kind of robust you can make the habitat for waders I don't know. I I slightly get the impression from what I've seen over the last couple of years here, the the more robust you can make the habitat for waders, the more robust the birds are in terms of to being able to look after themselves in the face of predation. So, um, yeah, there's lots um, there's lots of different kind of techniques you can do. Um, in some places, actually, productivity where where the habitat is really good, um, productivity can actually be pretty good without predator control or very little predator control but as i say that's it's difficult i suppose sitting um where i'm sitting just now indoors um to kind of produce a one size fits all um, prescription for for a lot of this stuff it really does depend on on where you are and what you're interested in doing but in terms of habitat management work you can do there's loads of different there's loads of different things and actually it's one of the things we've been trying to do through working for waders is um publicize some of those techniques so we've produced guidance that's actually available on the working for waders website uh, you can look at stuff you can do in grassland we, um, we're going to produce stuff about peatland and actually how some more upland based stuff might work for waders um, but also at the same time back to the idea that none of this is none of this is new nobody's sort of reinventing the wheel here what well, the best the real strengths of working for waders is actually bringing together a lot of guidance that already exists um, nobody's really nobody's really inventing stuff here it's just making sure that the right people get the right stuff in the right places so in terms of guidance i would hope that the working for waders website is a good place to get started but there's more detailed stuff rspb website uh, game and wildlife conservation trust website i know sac's done loads of good stuff along this line so uh, the information the information is is out there and should be accessible and we could absolutely have a kind of broader discussion about wader scrapes and rush pasture cutting. I think in this instance, for uh, for the sake of time, um, I will just suggest that anybody who's particularly interested in, in waders, um, in addition to listening to this episode, go back and take a look at the, the previous episode that uh, Patrick and I recorded. Stephen, um, I wonder if I could just get your take on some of the actions that you think are particularly beneficial for waders that farmers could prioritise going forward. Yes, I think I think Patrick's done a good kind of summary of, of things there. I and mean, I think, you know, I think one of the things that we maybe quite often perceived about um, pushing for is, is making things wetter and, and adding scrapes and water and everything. And I think that is important as part of the habitat mosaic. You know, so a mix, a, a patchy landscape is, is really good for waders. And that comes down to, you know, moisture levels, water, vegetation structure, everything. But I think... 
you know, one of the things that's, that is really important is just healthy soils with, with good earthworm abundances and, and good accessibility to those to those food sources for the readers. So, you know, if you've got a really long sward, they'll probably not be able to, to access them. But I think, you know, a lot of that, you know, asking for, you know, to, to try and work on the soil health is something that, you know, ties in really well with just sustainable farming, really. So it's a lot of, a lot of things that would benefit farming systems, you know, if we're talking about, um, you know, liming on acidic pastures, um, you know, aerating, uh, compacted soils, these things that will benefit waders through the food abundance, but they'll also benefit, um, you know, the, the farming systems, improving drainage uh, and improving uh, grass growth. So it's, yeah, I think having that as part of the mix, you know, just good food sources you know with nothing else in the landscape is not really going to support readers but having that as part of a mix with you know you know less improved habitats can really you know give them you know it can help support good populations of them but it helps them be more resilient in the face of you know difficult if they've got a lot of uh, predator pressure so it, it gives them the opportunity to, to feed up more and to, to lay more uh, replacement clutches if, if they need to do that so I think that's something that you know isn't too much of a hard sell for people to get on board with so uh, I would I would add that into the mix. And uh, obviously each of us have played lip service to the agri-environment climate scheme in this conversation we've just come to the end of the most recent application window for it Moving forward into the future, what are both of you looking for in terms of funding and scale of delivery for biodiversity conservation? And I'll I'll go to Patrick first. Again, that's another that's another huge question. Um, it's uh, I would go back to bits and pieces of what uh, Stephen was just saying there about how much a lot of this marries into kind of essential. Uh, productivity management anyway that, that a lot of farmers the farmers probably would be doing with with some with some adjustments uh, some small adjustments to suit waders so i think in terms of um support um it's going to be interesting to see how i mean a lot of the big prescriptions being put brought forward at a national level often kind of miss some of the real local detail that actually people on the ground need and that's really that's been really frustrating been really frustrating in the past but actually i i'm on the the steering group the scottish steering group of the nature friendly farming network there's 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 so much crossover when it comes to just a slightly more sustainable take on agriculture so much crossover with wader conservation um I can't help but think, but like, if farmers farmers knew how much money potentially they could save in places uh, by doing stuff that would actually be helping waders, I mean, that just it just it kind of strengthens that um, potential revenue stream. Even if you're saving money, not necessarily making it, and then you can patch in more targeted um, bottom up approach. Actually, putting more value on that kind of bottom up approach to farmers who really want to take the initiative. And that's one of the great things about I've seen through working for waders is. Um, Farmers like waders. By and large, farmers like waders. Uh, some of the best projects I've seen, some of the best groups of farmers I've seen working together, I've just done it through no um, in real incentive other than they believe that it's something they really want to get on with. So that's really driving. I've, I like to think that's really driving some of the conversations about what we're going to get next in terms of support. Um, is these guys who've just yeah got up, got up out of bed and, and done what needed to be done. So there's a bit of a there's a bit of a mix here, not knowing quite where things are going for the future um i don't know i think financially there's some really strong cases to to if you've got waders or if you're in an area with waders or i mean um there are obviously some, some target areas there's some focus areas but if there's waders where you are um it's not just not just a, a folly or idle fancy to show an interest in them i think there is there is quite a useful financial case to actually start getting getting a bit more hands-on and paying a bit more attention to what to what you've got on your farm and uh, Patrick, I don't want to put you on the spot here, but in previous years, there has been the Working for Waders small grant um, that was available. Are you optimistic about seeing that return? Do, do we know, or, or, or obviously you, you would be hopeful that the impact of that has been, uh, been, been quantifiable and largely beneficial. Is there anything you can say on that? 
Yeah, so that was just um, very briefly. That was uh, last year. We put together a grant that people could apply for up to a thousand pounds to 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 build things like wader scrapes, do small capital works um, for habitat features. Um, then we did a second round that was three thousand pounds each, and that allowed us to see kind of the next level of detail, see what people really were looking to do. Yeah, it produced lots of great work. Um, it um, we learned lots as a project, and I think a lot of the people we were working with on the project learned lots as well um we are still currently finalizing budgets at the moment and looking at how that could work next time around i can't say whether that's going to be available or not but that's certainly something that um now that we've done it year one year two looking at doing it year three um yeah that's that's that has been a really popular useful way forward to get people get interest and and, and actually make it a two-way learning um process so um i hope that it'll be back but equally we have at the moment some really good other different ways of of achieving the same goals and given that working for waders is kind of a bit of an innovative project we do lots of experimental stuff um it might just be that we've cracked something that works here and we pass that on to someone else or some other method of funding it and we go on and trial something else so as i say when we have made that decision yeah that'll be front and center i think i think that'll be hopefully be quite well publicized so people can get on board with it I'll just um, throw in my two cents here. Uh, my, my general uh, impression of of working with farmers on a day to day basis, um, especially more recently, has been that farmers are prepared to to take on small scale conservation projects like that. You know, the, there may very well be some who are reluctant to tie themselves down to a five year contract or. Uh, or even a, a larger contract, but if you give people the option of a, a small capital grant, um, I do do think that there's uh, that there's some real buy-in there. Stephen, so I think for the future around agri environment, I think it would be good to you know if it's going to be a results-based system, which we hear a lot about, I think that would I'd like to see the flexibility for for land managers to be creative and innovative because you know as, as we've discussed all farm farming systems and farms are, are different and unique and i think these broad brush prescriptions you know we, we we know they don't always necessarily fit even though they're designed as, as best as they can be and i think that sometimes holds some farmers back that we'll be able to do stuff that's, that's even more beneficial for for waders so i think you know, obviously we need to have guidance and, and structure for some people that aren't as advanced and, and knowing what to do and, and where to take things. But I think for some of them, it would be great to see that flexibility and the option to really think about what works best. And I think we could achieve, you know, much better results with that. Um, obviously, you know, if it's going to go to a results-based system, we need to be able to monitor those results. And, you know, there's more cost involved in that. But I think you know, that would really help, you know, make sure that what we're doing does have, you know, the impact that, that we know it can have, because certainly there's the will there from, from people to, to do it. Are, are you generally optimistic about the outlook for waders in Scotland? I mean, based on what you've seen in the past year, do you think that we're on the right track? I, I, I'd like to think that we are on the right track. And I mean, I think there's, you know, RSPB, we're doing doing loads of work working for waders are and working for waders are really you know helping you know facilitate that kind of joining up and sharing of resources because there's you know we've done a lot of work a lot of research on these species and i think you know there's always need for for more research and and some questions will always maybe elude us you know the answers might elude us because they're very complicated issues but i think in terms of actually getting on and, and delivering the work now you know, there's so many kind of across the country, so many different partnerships popping up. You know, we're involved in some and, and there's loads of others that we aren't involved in. And it's hard to think of a group of species that, you know, another group of species that are receiving so much interest. And I think it's the kind of unilateral affection for these species across, you know, conservationist farmers, estates. I think that if we, if we can you know, turn things around at this point for, for waders, then um, I'd, I'd be quite, you know, disappointed. Not to say that it's going to be an easy task because it's certainly not and it is very complicated, but 
I think there certainly is the will there to do it. And I think if we can just, you know, make sure that that funding is in place to do it, which I think will be, and, and you know, there are different mechanisms for which we can fund a lot of this work, then, yeah, hopefully we can, you know, we're in a position where I think we've, we've got robust enough populations in some places, of course, to, to kind of turn things around. Great. And um, just winding down the podcast now, guys, I really appreciate you both coming on. Um, can I just ask, Scottish government have indicated that they want to see transformational change in the way that we are farming and managing the landscape in Scotland to meet the kind of joint crises of biodiversity decline and, and climate change. From a wader perspective, what does transformational change mean to the two of you at farm level? What what would you like to see happen? I think, you know, talking about transformational change, I think moving forward, I'd like to see agriculture, you know, try to be more sustainable. And I think it, it will go in that direction, reducing inputs, uh, you know, which I think I can understand, you know, why we've, we've gone down that route. But you know, making it more sustainable is probably going to suit waders really nicely, um, and and just using the the kind of what is in the ground and on the ground uh, as as your sort of you know your your base to work from, and I think that in, that intensity of, of agriculture would be would be much more suited to to allowing waders to kind of thrive, and it would go hand in hand with uh, a lot of the positive work we're trying to do for them. I'd just go along with, with a, a lot of what Stephen said. I think he's nailed it. I think um, the one um, concern I'd have is is um, that so much of the stuff about regenerative land use, um, new directions for farmland, uh, my one point of concern is is, is tree planting forestry. Um, I would say almost, almost everything else aside from tree planting and, and woodland creation almost everything else you can do in in terms of really embracing some of the the the, the exciting stuff about regenerative agriculture is a is a win-win for for, for for waders and and farmers that's such an interesting kind of pinch point given that waders and trees are, just aren't always that compatible um i mean that's a broad brush comment there's ways ways and means with some species but as a rule um waders aren't big fans of trees um that's that's it's uh it's juggling those two in certain places and we've probably got to like to go back to some of the stuff Stephen Stephen was saying earlier about having good surveys working out the really strategically important areas for waders and making sure that those areas are kind of managed with an eye on those birds um that's probably going to be really important for the future but um waders are pretty resilient they're farmland birds they're 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 designed to be riding alongside a lot of um rural businesses um provided we just bear them in mind a little bit more than we have done i think they're robust enough to go along with a with a tremendous amount of 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 transformational change that's one frustration i have sometimes with waders is that they kind of um uh, linked in lots of people's minds to kind of old-fashioned farming the way things used to be um but there's nothing intrinsically old-fashioned about them at all we just need to give them a bit of space and, and, and leave give them a bit of breathing room i think we'd be surprised at the kind of habitats that we now need to make give, facing the climate crisis facing all the issues we've got i think we'd be surprised at, 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 at how flexible they can be but but um they aren't straightforward birds there's lots of complexities we need to unravel provided we can crack that i think they've got a they've got a, a uh, a, a decent future ahead of them. Brilliant. And uh, so closing question for, for both of you. You're both working at farm level right now. You're seeing what's going on in the industry. Is there anything that you want to spotlight, um, any particularly good practice or innovative ideas that uh, you think should be getting more attention, Stephen? So I've, I've done quite a lot of, of work on peatland restoration over the past couple of years now uh, in and around Muir Kirk. And I think the way that that is unfolding, obviously with climate change, uh, you know, being hugely significant for, for all of us just now, that it's it's all going down the sort of carbon route and, you know, how it's good for climate and everything. And, and that's absolutely true and very important. But I think that these you know healthy functioning peatlands are also really really um, important for for biodiversity 
and and for waders in particular you know as certainly as part of those habitat mosaics where they can really thrive so i think it'd be really good for us to to continue to profile just how um you know the, the extra benefits to peatland restoration over and above the the, the climate benefit and uh, Patrick, anything that you want to spotlight? Yeah, I think Stephen's um, stolen my thunder on that. I think peatland is a really interesting um, kind of potential direction for for wader conservation in the future. Um, and I think actually that's where we're going to see some really good successes for for certain, particularly upland species for uh, of wading birds. One thing I've seen just recently that I thought was really cool is is uh, bits and pieces of mob grazing in the uplands, which, while I don't think there's any specific data or real kind of close-knit analysis of the effect um moving cattle really hammering small areas and moving them across um in sections across a large area of hillside um as i say no data to support it but it looks fantastic for curlews bits and pieces sometimes just look absolutely spot on you couldn't design a uh, better kind of habitat making sure that there's grass at almost infinite degree of different stages there's insects there's all sorts of different structural diversity in there I'd really love to see a little bit more data on that to back that up because actually it's interesting mob grazing so often being put forward as like an agricultural technique, like an agricultural pro, something that'll pay off in in, in financial agricultural terms. But I think um, there's some really cool biodiversity arguments in there as well that we haven't even started to, to unpick yet. So when people start talking about uh, mob grazing in the uplands, uh, yeah, I get, I, get, I get quite excited about that. That's really cool. Brilliant. Well, listen, guys, I'm just going to draw the podcast to a close now. Um, on behalf of the Scottish Farm Advisory Service, I think this has been really great. Um, so so thanks very much for, for coming on. Um, Stephen, I wonder, RSPB um, is is widely known um, and, uh, and people will know how to get in touch. But is there any particular way that people should get in touch with RSPB if they have any questions going forward or um, any any way of getting in touch with yourself? So for getting in touch with us, uh, the website's a great place to get all the contact details. We've got um, uh, quite a lot of farmland uh, farming advisors. So we've we've got that department in Scotland and we have our policy people as well. So yeah, you should be able to get signposted to, to who you need to speak to. And Patrick, how do people get in touch with Working for Waders and your good self? So we've got a website up and running, www.workingforwaders.com. Um, we're on Facebook. We're on Twitter. Brilliant. Well, uh, on behalf of the Farm Advisor Service, thanks very much. Thanks so much for joining us for this episode of Thrill the Hill. If you enjoyed listening, please like, subscribe and follow this podcast. Leave us a review and let us know how we're doing. And if you'd like to get in touch, you can find all our details at the bottom of our show notes below.